Hello there, student affairs fans. Hello, ACPA. That's right, it's Tuesday, March 28th, and this is a very special edition of Student Affairs Live, the online learning community for student affairs educators in higher education. I'm your MC, Matthew Ferguson, a former student affairs professional uh, turned corporate hack, uh, and today, we're broadcasting live from the ACPA convention in beautiful Columbus, Ohio. With our second annual Contested Issues Live Debates in Student Affairs program. Now, Columbus attendees, uh, let your colleagues, families, and friends know that this will be available online uh, for them to watch at a later time. So we are excited that you're going to be a part of that. And you, my friends, can participate in this learning community, you can participate with continuing the discussion from the debates by tweeting using the hashtag HigherEdLive at any point today. At this point, I would like to introduce your hosts for Higher Ed Live and moderators for today's debate. Originally from Parker, Colorado, a current doctoral student at Michigan State University, a three-time Colorado State alum, including a master's in student affairs, an avid, an avid runner averaging over 1,000 miles annually, and a tender to a basil garden to supply all of her family's pesto needs, please welcome to the stage Heather Shea. And next up, originally from the shopping mall capital of the world, Paramus, New Jersey, currently serving as the Senior Director for Student Engagement at Rutgers University, a Rutgers graduate with a degree in management, an ocean kayaker with a tomatillo salsa recipe that complements his salsa dancing skills, might be a tad competitive as his original Jersey license plate said, the game. Please welcome to the stage, Tony Duty. So today's show is produced by M. Stoner, a marketing communication firm that works with higher education institutions on branding, strategy, web design, and more. Heather and I have been fortunate to have done shows over the last few years with over a hundred of the top scholars and leaders. Over the last year alone, we've done 32 shows with over 41,000 views, all 50 states and 162 countries. Student Affairs Live is sponsored by ACPA, College Student Educators International. ACPA's sponsorship of Student Affairs Live is one of the many ways you can be innovative in your professional development. Also check out their video on-demand channel, Journal of College Student Development, About Campus, many different institutes, including our annual convention, which we are all enjoying here. On behalf of Tony and everyone at Higher Ed Live, we want to thank the ACPA leadership for their second year of support of the Student Affairs Live channel. Thanks. All right, thank you, Heather and Tony. You can take your seats. Before we get this show on the road, we also would like to extend a special note of thanks to Peter Magolda and Marsha Baxter-Magolda for granting permission to use the contested issues name for this special event. Our hope is that this open exchange of ideas pays tribute to their legacies. Debate. 
It can be a scary word, especially if you watched any television in the United States in the last six months. But despite this, it has been a form of civilized discourse around the world for hundreds of years, with some records dating back as far as ancient Greece. Today, the debate format will be used to deliver different perspectives in an engaging way with the hope of creating even more dialogue on some of these hot topics in our field. To create more robust discourse, some of our participants today have been asked to represent viewpoints that do not necessarily reflect their own. Today's guests have prepared, that, prepared with that mindset and with a commitment to collegiality in mind. <laughs> that is, with the exception of Susan, who is still demanding a recount from last year. <laughs> Our format today is simple. Each guest will deliver a 60-second opening statement. After that, each side will have 60 seconds to answer a question from our moderators. I will then pose a crowdsourced question to each side, allowing for a 45-second response. If you have a great question in mind, there are some white slips. We have some volunteers walking around with some white slips. Fill out your question and pass it to the end of the aisle, and it will be reviewed for consideration. And we will bring it home with a 30-second closing statement from each guest. I will remind our debaters that there are time limits in place to keep the show moving. When you hear this bell, that means your time is up and you should finish the current thought as quickly as possible. At that point, you, the audience, are going to help us to determine our winner. If you are in one of our center sections, you will have a blue or red card in front of you. If you don't, you know, kind of move to a section where you see some cards blue or red, and you'll be able to hold up the card of the corresponding individual that you believe has successfully won our debate. Now, for our debaters, this is important. Ultimate bragging rights until the next convention in Houston and drinks on Donna Lee. <laughs> Note that I have not actually been authorized to offer that, but as our students sometimes say, YOLO. So, all right, higher ed live viewers, ACPA attendees, away we go. Away we go. Our first topic is graduate preparation. Do current student affairs graduate programs adequately prepare our graduate students for the field? Let's meet our guests for this debate. Hailing from right here in Columbus, Ohio, currently a proud administrator at the Ohio State University, earned a PhD from Virginia Tech in the field of recreation, planning a summer bike tour in Slovenia, and still knows how to use a slide rule. Please welcome to the stage, Gretchen, Gretchen Metzellers. Recreation. And next up, coincidentally also from Columbus, Ohio, currently a professor in higher education and student affairs program at The Ohio State University, earned a PhD from the University of Maryland, served as a torch runner at the Olympics in Salt Lake City, and once played on a softball team with Jerry of Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream as the coach, 
please welcome to the stage Susan Rob Jones. Now, Tony, before I said this to you, I, I am going to say one thing. Uh, 2017 is a very special year for our two debaters as they will be celebrating their 25th anniversary this year. Maybe. All right, we're going to start us off. And Gretchen, you are going to take the side that our graduate preparation programs are not adequately preparing students for the field. So you've got 60 seconds on the clock for your opening statement. Thank you. Let me uh, start off by saying that not all student personnel graduate programs are created equal. Some do a stellar job of training the next generation of student affairs professionals, but some not so much. Grad programs are intended to be training grounds for careers in student affairs, but in my estimation, current graduates have been perfectly trained to write 30-page papers, APA of course, <laughs> learn the difference between mean, median, and mode, and memorize some historical foundation stuff. But they're falling short on some critical abilities we're looking for, like crisis management, the initiative to lead, and the ability to communicate with students. The most glaring defect in some programs is the lack of attention given to prepare graduates to work one-on-one -on -one with students. Some programs have graduates that emerge without taking a course in counseling. Are you kidding me? <laughs> they should be ta taking two or three counseling classes and spend some time practicing those skills. Is that too much to ask? <laughs> All right, Susan, you are arguing that we are doing just fine in our preparation. You've got 60 seconds on the clock. All right, so why would a senior student affairs administrator think that graduate students are unprepared to enter the field? Well, first of all, this is not a new complaint. For many years, student affairs administrators have wanted new professionals to know everything about everything when they first enter the field. How often do we hear, they can't do a budget? My guess is that these administrators didn't learn how to develop budgets in graduate school either. We can't expect grad prep programs to shoulder this responsibility entirely or to teach grad students everything they need to know in graduate school. Much of the practical tool set needed on the job is learned on the job and supervised by talented professionals in student affairs. Grad prep programs prepare grad students to competently engage in the realities of practice and to ask the right questions. Second, who among us didn't make mistakes in grad school? I sure did. Thank you, Jill Carnegie. <laughs> Today's administrators, thanks to the federal government, litigious parents, and a whole host of other factors, are far less forgiving of mistakes than we once were. What happened to the student affairs core value of meeting individuals where they are in their development? Grad, need, grad students need to be appreciated for who they are and what they know, not what they don't know. This, this is going to be close. I can tell already. All right. All right. First question for, for you, Gretchen. So we know that we can't continue to add more things to the, to the plate of, of master's programs, so we've, we've got to cut something. So my question is, what courses do you th think are currently superfluous? And if you could re you reinvented the convention experience a few years ago, if you could reinvent the graduate experience, what would you change? I th Tony, I think we can take away some of the historical pieces and put them online. There's opportunity to use the um, internet and uh, some skill building we can do 
using um, uh, courses online and uh, access to different ways of learning that don't have to be in the classroom. So I think that's where, where I would go and also let students blog and do other um, opportunities to learn, not in the classroom all the time. So any, anything that you think we could, we're okay with, we, we don't need it anymore? I think that there's some old historical pieces that we do not necessarily need to build on all the time. Okay, very good, all right. Next question's for you. So to Gretchen's point, many grad programs do subscribe to CAS standards in their development, but it, it does seem a little bit like the wild, wild west of graduate preparatory programs out there. So should we and how do we ensure consistency and accountability across the profession for these graduate programs? Well, I think that's a great question. Um, I also want to say something about history, uh, because um, we do, if we forget our history, then we don't understand the context of our work. And so um, I think uh, replacing faculty with online instructors takes away some of uh, what's so special about our profession. Um, I also want to say that um, all grad programs, in my view, should adhere to the CAS standards. Um, and if they do, then they'll be taking counseling classes. And most grad students spend more time outside of the classroom working in assistantships and internships to learn those valuable skills like interacting with other people. And if they're supervised well, then they get great feedback about essential core competencies. In addition to the CAS standards, things like uh, the ACPA NASPA core competencies should guide uh, our work in grad programs as well as in student affairs. So um, the wild, wild west metaphor doesn't resonate so well for me. To I, I knew it wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> Giddy up. <laughs> okay, Tony, we have some crowdsourced questions here. My first one goes to Gretchen. Gretchen, do you believe that supervisors' lack of understanding of current curriculum is a potential contributor to lack of preparation? And what can professionals do to better fill in those gaps? Matt, I absolutely believe that is true, that many of our supervisors have no idea what's going on in the classroom and don't understand the, the curriculum. So I think that there are supervisors that are falling short uh, of understanding, and I happen to be on the lucky side of understanding what's going on in the curriculum. Uh, so I think that the um, faculty could help out the supervisors and some uh, SSAOs could require the directors and assistant vice presidents in their purview to learn what's going on in the classroom as well. Thank you. Mm -hmm. All right, and uh, Susan, for you, given how broad the range of areas of student affairs curriculum there are today, why is a master's degree still required for so many jobs? Um, I think that uh, the, the breadth has probably to do with the nature of the work that people are doing with a big breadth of functional areas. But I would say that what uh, individuals need to know um, is actually smaller than that breadth and prepares them for a number of functional areas. So understanding something about theories that guide our practice 
can be applied whether you're an academic advisor, a conduct officer, a housing director, or a senior associate vice president for student affairs. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we are down to our final closing statements. You can either respond to that or just finish strong. It's up to you. I'm good. I'm good. All right, your time right. starts now. Okay, Susan, I get it. There are plenty of good programs that don't have a counseling component. But if those grads haven't had some counseling classes, I need to know they've spent a year or two in the residence house, living in, living with our students. You need to understand that the average day-to-day -day business of life on campus isn't average anymore. Stuff happens, scary stuff, it's more than just tornado warnings. And, and a lot of our Generation Z students can't cope. They need people willing to stand side by side with them to work on their problems. We need gladiators, people ready to run toward the problem and say, we've got this handled. I think you lose that line last year. <laughs> It well, worked, it worked. It? it did work in, in her defense. All right, you've got the final word, 30 seconds. All right, so grad prep programs are not the source of the problem. Universities these days are focused on the wrong things, and this impacts us all, including new professionals. Grad prep programs are pushed to being entrepreneurial and offer quick in, quick out, revenue generating credentials. This serves no one well except the coffers of universities. We're all being asked to do more with less, which means we are expecting, we may be expecting too much of new professionals. Preparing new professionals for the field is a shared responsibility, not one shouldered only by grad prep programs. Embracing this partnership will increase the likelihood that grad students are fully prepared to enter the field and make significant contributions to their workplace. Okay, it's now time for our audience to decide if you are team Gretchen, hold that red card up. If you our team Susan hold that blue card up. Uh-oh. 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 Very close. Very close. But we are going to give it to Susan. How about a nice round of applause for both our debaters? Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> that way, that way. <laughs> All right, folks, our next topic is ACPA and NASPA consolidation. <laughs> Should we revisit a consolidation between ACPA and NASPA, or is it best for the organizations to remain independent? I am going to take this moment to remind our audience that in the spirit of debate, some of our guests today may be representing a viewpoint that does not fully represent their own. Let's meet our guests for this debate. On the pro-consolidation side, calling Chicago home, currently serving as the Vice President for Student Development at Simpson College, earned a doctoral degree from Temple University, began college as a violin major, and still actively participates in several choirs, and finally looking forward to eating her way through Northern Italy this summer. Please welcome ACPA past president, Heidi Levine. 
And on the pro-independence side of the debate, <laughs> calling Baltimore home by way of Philadelphia, currently serving as the president of the Washington Consulting Group and president and co-founder of the Social Justice Training Institute, holding a PhD from the University of Maryland College Park and a Master of Divinity degree from Howard University, a grandfather to seven, a great uncle to six, and a regular binge watcher of TV shows like The Walking Dead and This Is Us. Please welcome current ACPA Vice President Jamie Washington. Heidi, Jamie, glad to have you both here today. Glad to be here. Glad you are. So, Heidi, your perspective is that we should be revisiting this conversation and that they should be one association. Uh, your opening statement, 60 seconds, begins now. The 2010 Future of Student Affairs Joint Task Force called for a unified voice for student affairs, asserting that two separate comprehensive professional associations creates a fragmented, duplicative, and competitive voice. The April 2011 vote of ACPA and NASPA members clearly show that the majority of members of both associations favored consolidation. We currently face significant challenges in areas including access to higher education, human rights that we have come to see as fundamental being again under attack, and the discourse that should be at the heart of colleges and universities reflecting our broader society's struggles for civic engagement. The consolidation of ACPA and NASPA would maximize the ability of student affairs professionals to speak clearly and compellingly to those issues that are most vital to higher education, student affairs, and our students. In an era in which society and higher education face extraordinary challenges, there has never been a more important time for us to consolidate our resources in a unified, comprehensive student affairs association. Jamie, you believe we should remain separate. Your opening statement begins Thank now. Thank you, um, and I appreciate your comments. I just don't agree. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, in thir 35 years ago, there was both ACPA and NASPA that I learned of as a graduate student. ACPA and NASPA are two very strong contributing voices to student affairs and the higher education dialogue. However, they are not the same voices. I believe that there is still room and needed distinction in the contributions of these two spaces. While both represent the breadth of student affairs practice in higher education, there, is clearly areas, there are clearly areas in which ACPA um, has been and continues to be content area expert, um, as does NASPA. Yes, we do need to work together. Yes, we do need to recognize the strengths of both organizations. However, I do not believe that it means that we need to become one association. Oh, very good, very good. So, Heidi, you mentioned that we voted on this six years ago, and I think there are probably many in the room who felt like that should have been the final word and are wondering why are we still having this conversation? Wasn't it settled? Can you tell me why specifically what has changed and why revisiting it now might be a good idea? So although the vote to consolidate did not pass, the majority of members in both associations who participated in the vote were in favor. And at the time, um, 
NASPA's bylaws did not include, did not allow a significant portion of its members to vote. Um, so I'm not entirely convinced that the NASPA vote effectively or, or really reflected the view of all NASPA members. Aside from that, as I said in my opening statement, the challenges that we face, I mean, we certainly faced significant challenges six years ago. I can't, uh, I can't think of an environment that I have been in in my over 35 years in this field that have been more difficult, more complex, more compelling than now. And if I have a hard time telling my president why there's a difference between these associations and who should be the thought leader, how do we effectively engage our legislatures, our government, the broader public, if we are not able to step forward with a single unified voice representing higher ed and student affairs? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So I know many in student affairs actually attend both ACPA and NASA, but for some of us, um, many of us perhaps, that's a little bit beyond our professional development budgets. How do you help, if you believe they should be separate, how do you help um, new professionals and graduate students uh, decide which association to belong to and join? So, so for me, just like we make decisions about where we go to work, just like we make decisions about where we go to school. It's about culture and about fit and about where I find my voice. And if you, uh, I tell graduate students all the time, if they feel like they can find their voice and find comfort in the culture in both spaces, then they get to pick and choose. They don't have to go to the same place every year. If, in fact, they don't feel like they can do that, then they have more than one option. Um, it is not my belief that we need to have one option in student affairs that have a comprehensive voice and experience. And so I just encourage folks to go where you get encouraged to take a look, see what works for you. If it works, stay there. If you find that um, this year the speakers, the conference location, the experience that's being offered works better for me, then go there. And so I think that we need more than one option, as we do with all other kinds of programs and services that we offer in student affairs. Thanks, Jamie. Questions from the audience? This is a hot topic. Yes. So this first question is directed to Heidi. Heidi, how would you respond to concerns that combining organizations would remove opportunities for leadership, presenting, and writing? So one of the things that I think um, was really attended to pretty closely in the proposed plan for consolidation seven years ago was looking for ways to maximize not only the national level but also regional state levels to engage um, professionals through both geographically throughout over the course of their career that not everything needs to happen at the national level. If we have a strong network of states, of regions that funnel up to the national, some folks actually feel more comfortable and find it easier to get engaged at that regional level. Not everybody needs to be at, active at the same place at the same time and we can still create pipelines and avenues for involvement across our states, across our regions, and across the country. Thank you. And uh, Jamie, this is a question from our audience, but it was also something that Heidi alluded to. Uh, how would you respond to concerns that having two, the, the perception of two separate associations, uh, how that affects our capital in Washington, D.C., especially given the 
evolving landscape of uh, priorities with regards to education uh, in the current administration? <laughs> Again, um, I go back to the, the notion that there is, there needs to be only one voice and one perspective. These associations have come together with different histories, different cultures, which means there's different lenses through which they will see and understand and engage issues. And if we are working with a legislature that cannot hold more than one truth, then the problem is not with the associations, it is the problem with the legislature. So we might want to do some more work in preparing them to hold the complexity of more than one perspective and more than one lens as we navigate the issues and the challenges that we face in higher education. <laughs> I, I want to be. I want to be clear. I was asking for a friend. Okay. I was. I was, not. That was definitely a mic drop moment, but we told them not to drop mics. Thank you. Um, so closing statements. You both can respond to each other or provide your, your just your closing statements. You have 30 seconds. So Heidi, you're first. In the six years since the vote on consolidation, higher education has come under greater scrutiny and faced more significant challenges than any time in recent memory. ACPA and NASPA coming together to form a single comprehensive student affairs association would be a more responsible use of financial and human resources. It would allow us to more clearly present the face of student affairs to constituents within and beyond our campuses and our voice to affect change and shape the future of higher education would be magnified by coming together. After 40 years of conversation, the time is now. Okay, exciting. Jamie? Thank you. Statement. And you're wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have watched this conversation happen amongst churches, among colleges and universities, amongst community organizations, and the conversation around, well, should we combine because it's more fiscally responsible? Should we combine because um, it makes more sense given the numbers of folks that we have? And I would just like to add, again, as I said, that there are spaces in which my voice feels more compelling. My voice feels more heard. I feel more connected. And as I look out here at ACPA, at over 3,000 participants that's just here physically, I believe that there is still room for both associations to be on their own. Thank you. Okay, audience, it's now going to be your turn to decide. So if you are Team Jamie, you're going to hold the red card up. Team Heidi, you're going to hold the blue card up. I'm going to make sure this is clear. Your, your vote is for the debate. <laughs> this is not the way we're actually deciding anything here today. So, All right, so get those cards up for us. Oh. Whoa. I don't know. Okay. I think it's really close. It's going to, <laughs> yes, I, it, it looks like we have our result. Our winner is Jamie. Oh. <laughs> How about a nice round of applause for both Heidi and Jamie? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Nice job. All right, our next topic, authenticity. Should student affairs professionals present as their authentic self 
to, to students and in their institutional environment. Let's meet our guests for this debate. <laughs> On one side, calling the site of next year's convention Houston, Texas home, currently serving as the Associate Vice President and Chief of Staff for Student Affairs at Northwestern University, holding a PhD from Indiana State, a self-proclaimed musical theater geek that challenges anyone here to a Hamilton sing-off, <laughs> and a recent convert to spinning, the cycling variety that is. Please welcome Julie Payne Kirchmeyer. And on the opposing side, Calling Athens, Georgia home, having earned a master's and doctorate from the University of Georgia, currently serves as the Vice President for Student Affairs at Indiana State University, has been known to watch reruns of the Golden Girls for hours at a time, and never met a bow tie he didn't like. Please welcome Willie Banks. You brought the sunglasses, I like it. I did. Tell Megan yeah. borrow them later. Yeah, yeah, we'll do right. selfies later, it's all good. All right, so you are taking the stance that we should be authentic in our professional lives. Mm -hmm. So you've got 60 seconds on the clock for your opening statement, starting now. Authenticity is a word often used, yet misunderstood. It's defined as being true to one's own values, spirit, or character. And based on this and our professional values, we must be authentic to be effective. Why? Well, first, we must be authentic in order to serve as role models for our students. Discussing and behaving with, in accordance with our values is one of the fundamental ways students learn how to do the same for themselves. Second, authentic leadership results in increased staff engagement, retention, productivity, as well as in the adoption of inclusive policies and practices. These same practices can impact fundamental change on dominant systems of privilege. And third, some believe in order to make space for all voices, we have to be neutral and hide parts of ourselves. This idea does uh, both a disservice to both ourse ourselves and our students. Rather, as educators, we must teach others how to authentically share their personal narratives in order to enable dialogue, not divisiveness, in a non-neutral world. Does being authentic involve risk? Absolutely. But given these reasons and so many more, the risk is not only necessary, it's worth it. All right, Willie, 60 seconds for your opening statement. All right, JPK, let's do this. All right. All right. As student affairs professionals, we are told to be open, honest, and caring. However, beyond the niceties and politeness, the system is not inherently built for professionals to be our true, authentic selves. For many of us, the notion of being our true, authentic selves leads to stereotyping, unfair reactions to question or comments, the marginalization of that authentic person, and while many of us would say that they want that true, authentic person to show up, I believe that if we all showed up in our true, authentic selves, for many of us, we would be unemployed. <laughs> Carry the stigma of being too real, labeled as combative, not a team player, or have an attitude. The notion of being authentic for many people of color, LGBTQ people, women, and other marginalized groups comes at a higher price than other professionals. I also believe that inherently the system wants you to show up authentically, but to a point. Not all institutions are ready, willing, or open to authenticity. I do not believe that we are ever fully authentic. 
I was real, though. <laughs> All right, so Julie, first question to you. And, and Willie brought this up a little bit. So isn't sharing one's authentic story uh, really a privilege for essay educators like yourself who are in higher ranks or even faculty in tenured positions? I mean, wouldn't telling new professionals that they should uh, voice their authentic self have potentially have an adverse impact on their career? So I think this is where we get back to the whole concept of what authenticity means. I think we have come to understand the word to mean, I'm gonna verbal vomit everything about myself at you every time I walk in the door, right? <laughs> that is not what we're talking about. Authenticity means an alignment with your values. Who are you? What do you do? And think about what we teach our students. What's the first thing we talk about in student development every time? It's who are you and what do you believe? And acting in accordance with your values doesn't necessarily mean outing certain parts of yourself you're not ready to do that with. Remember Brene Brown who talked about very early on the whole concept of you share things with people that they've earned the right to know? To me, that's being authentic. I'm gonna share who I am with you, lead from that frame, challenge and support all of my own identities in a way that lets me make key decisions. It's not about me telling you my whole life story in two seconds, which can be incredibly risky. Okay, very good. Not convinced? Benghazi. <laughs> Emails? There you go. <laughs> Catch up, people. Catch up. Catch up. It'll come to you later. We'll get it later. All right. So, Willie, you suggest that we should keep our values, our perspective, our beliefs to ourselves, but particularly in this political climate, which Jamie and Matt alluded to a little bit, isn't silence siding with the oppressor? It, 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 how, how do our students, who may be the most vulnerable, for instance, uh, stu students of, of color, trans students, immigrants, know that we're on their, our, their side if we're not visible and vocal in our support? Well, you know, that's a great question, Tony, and I think it's really difficult, but I think I'm gonna use this from the lens as a queer person of color sitting around a cabinet, and the reality is is that I'm having to out myself every day. And so the reality is that I'm taking a much higher risk for me to advocate for students. So the thing is, that is, and I own that privilege, I have that as a VP title, and I'm not sure that other people in the room have that privilege, and especially for new professionals, mid-level managers, that's a huge risk. And I am saying is that when you're at that table, when you're in these environments, not all these environments are gonna be for that. So I think you have to really think about it. You have to figure out ways, how do you connect with students? How do you tell them? And I think that's personally, but I think from my lens as a, as a VPSA, it's really tough. It is really tough because you have to understand that there are all sorts of students on your campus and for me I need to make sure that those students feel comfortable enough to have that conversation with me even if they disagree with me. So it's a tough proposition but I, I would venture to say that not everyone is going to be completely authentic all the time. Okay. Matt to you. So I have a question we're actually gonna ask both to answer from from their lenses as uh, senior student affairs professionals. What role does your institutional culture play or how has it impacted your authenticity? We'll start with Julie. 
So I think one of the things that I learned early on is when I was looking for the next role to really look at the institutional culture up front and see how that aligned with my own values. And so when I made those choices and when I thought about where I was going to apply, that's one of the first things I looked at. Um, now, to me, it's also a constant negotiation on my side, right, that, you know, the institution is making decisions based on its overall values and overall mission, and what do I think about that? And so in the position of power that I have, in the spaces where I show up, I need to be making sure I'm advocating for what I believe is right in an authentic way. And so I think that is a way both the culture can shape those long-range decisions, but that I can have an impact on that culture from my authentic frame. Repeat the question. <laughs> the question is, what role has institutional culture played in or affected your authenticity? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think for all of us, when we consider where we land um, in positions, we have to take the regional um, structure, the cities, the towns, what are those values? And I think it is important. And I think for those of us who are not in booming metropolises that have a large community, we have to figure out how do we function in that space, but then also how do we um, advocate for students who do not have that voice? Um, but I, I would say it has been a struggle, and I think probably for a lot of people that you struggle and you try to decide how do your values align with that institution. Um, and I think also if you think, if you look at it regionally, there are some institutions and there are state institutions that are be under fire every day for having an LGBTQ center, for talking about social justice. And I really think that there, the conversation has to happen that we're not always surrounded by student affairs folks. And there are other people who do not understand all of these identities, and we have to do that education. So you, you have to take all of those things into consideration. Okay. Well, at the end of our debate, you've got 30 seconds to either respond or, or have your prepared finishing statement here. All right, so I'm gonna take the, the opportunity to respond. And so one of the things, Willie, that you said is that when you're in rooms with folks, you know, and, and it, it's difficult, and it is difficult, and I want to acknowledge the fact that there are people that have different levels of privilege throughout this room, but I will say that if I don't show up in those moments with my authentic self, advocating for th the things that I believe in, the landscape will never change. It is my job, it is my duty to come in the door and say, from this frame, from my identity as a woman, if I hear sexist comments, if I see sexist policies or decisions that are problematic, I am going to advocate to say, no, we need to make a different decision. And if I don't do that, then I am not leading authentically. I will say, is it my turn? Okay. Yeah. I will say that that's all fine and dandy. <laughs> However, I think to get more people, more women of color, more marginalized groups to these positions around the table to make those decisions, to change systematic policies and institutions, we are not, we cannot do that very early on, on in our careers because I think that we are, we will be labeled and we won't have those opportunities to get into those boardrooms and around the table. So I think at some point in time, you have to pull back and I don't know that you can be your complete, completely full authentic self very early in your career. Ding, Benghazi. <laughs> All right, you know. it's time for our audience to decide. If you're team Willie, put your blue card up. If you're team Julie, put your red card up. Uh oh. 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 That's wow. Good luck with this, Matt. <laughs> wow. Well, it's on air, right? We've got planted judges in the audience. It is very close. It is very, very close, folks. We're, we're giving it to Julie. Oh. oh. Recount. Recount. <laughs> very close.
Very close. But how about giving I won the popular vote. How about that? I won the popular vote. Director Comey. Director Comey. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. All right, our next topic focuses on the scope of student affairs in higher education. Are the programs and services we offer to current students on our campuses far exceeding the academic mission of higher education? Let's meet our guests for this debate. <laughs> on one side, Born in Cuba, raised in Florida, lived in Indiana the longest, currently on the faculty at the University of South Florida, earned a PhD and master's degree from the University of Georgia, has traveled to 49 out of 50 states, and worked as a probation officer as a first job outside of college. Please welcome Vasti Torres. <laughs> some intimidation there, the probation officer, so. <laughs> and on the other side of the debate, hailing from Indianapolis, Indiana, currently serving as the Vice President for Student Development at St. Louis University, an educational pedigree that can be summed up with three words, Boilermaker, Spartan, and Hoosier. Go, Go Green! Enjoys knitting, gardening, and supporting their children's passion for musical theater and horses. Please welcome Jill Carnegie. <laughs> Thank you, Donald. Oh my goodness. <laughs> All right, so Bossy, you feel that the scope of student affairs has far exceeded the academic mission. So your opening statement, you have 60 seconds. Absolutely. In an era of accountability and public vigilance over the cost of higher education, student affairs continues to want to expand services and programs beyond what the academic mission demands of our institutions. The self-imposed constant pressure to offer more is only making the college experience cost more and diverting scarce resources from the academic mission. Each time an institution says it's expanding its services, it should actually tell the truth and say, we're going to charge students more money to look like we're doing something different. In a college board report on the trends in college pricing in 2014, it was documented that room and board is slightly over 50% of attending a public university. The requirement to sequester students on campus housing is based on old research with many limitations. What student affairs should do is concentrate on contributing to the academic mission. No. <laughs> Your opening yes. statement. You think student affairs is fine and maybe should continue to expand. Tell us more. The diversity of students coming to college today has far exceeded the conventional paradigm of student affairs work. We must shift our focus to one of a learning paradigm, working more closely with the institution's academic mission. We cannot stay rooted in a business paradigm focused on customer satisfaction. To quote, to quote Tracy Davis, anyone who is responsible for student learning knows the dramatic diversity of skill levels, characteristics, experiences, and histories represented by students that clearly elude simplistic industrial outcome measures. 
Affective, cognitive, identity, and other dispositional characteristics influence the unfolding of learning with different individuals. Therefore, I contend that student affairs need to be doing more to address student learning that is inextricably linked to the academic mission of our institutions. All right, so I have a question for each of you. So Vasi, you said that we, the top, we should stop providing these services and programs um, because they are extraneous to the academic life of students. Are you, are you dismissing or diminishing the role of the learning outside of the classroom that Student Affairs often provides? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> we were told we couldn't use the F-bomb. <laughs> I was told three times. <laughs> so, I, I think what we're forgetting is that we are not the only people who can facilitate the learning outside the classroom. That to assume that all, the only way that students can learn outside the classroom is if we structurally facilitate something and create a program that costs more money um, is a false assumption. Um, and of course, one that Jill would have. So um, what we need to do is concentrate on making sure we're supporting the academic mission and helping students in the classroom connect with things outside the classroom. Okay. <laughs> All right. So my question for you, Jill, um, what is the limit of mission and scope creep? So the often cited lazy river and climbing wall and high you stole talk. my closing <laughs> comments. <laughs> so isn't this just bloat? Like, how does this contribute to the academic experience of students? And what is the limit of the scope, I guess? I'm not sure it's so much scope and bloat and creep as much as getting back to what's the learning paradigm. What do we need to do? We have more and different students coming to campuses now than ever before. When you think of first generation, gender identity and expression couldn't be more different. Veterans, single parents, Look at the students that, um, the number of campuses that now have food pantries, the food insecurities, even homelessness. It's the health and wellness, students coming with different um, learning abilities. All that we need to take into consideration and we need to really focus and come in partnership with the academic mission that may not cost us more money, but how do we at least create an equitable playing field for everybody? Because first and foremost in student affairs, we want students to learn and we want them to be successful academically and holistically. Yeah. Questions from the audience? Okay, this one, this one goes to Jill first. How can you justify expenditures on extra services when academic buildings are falling apart and faculty are underpaid? And how do campuses without resources keep up? And Vasti did not hand me this question. I'm going to be clear. I don't believe that for a minute. <laughs> Your 45 seconds. Why do we always assume when we add more it's going to cost more? And why can't we take away things? Why can't we stop doing things? Why can't we collaborate with people on the academic side? Why can't we really look at what do students need, not to what we need? We need to flip the script. And we really need to think, of, I go back to student learning, student success, and how do we take care of each of every student? I mean, we, we shoot ourselves in the foot, if not the heart and the head, 
if we act with our head, about how we promote our institutions and what our institutions are about and what we need from them. And we don't need every new bangled thing that's going to be the best and the, not the brightest. And this question is for Vasti. If we only focus on the academic mission, won't we unfairly disadvantage students that are less familiar with higher education, such as first-generation students? Well, I'd love to say that that is an accurate reflection. The reality of it is most first-generation college students go to class, go to work, go home. Um, I'd love to see that be different, but that's not the case. So I don't think we necessarily can make an argument that we're benefiting first-generation and college students by providing more services. Instead, we should be focusing on helping faculty work with these students because the community that they see in higher education is the classroom. Okay. So you can each respond to any of the questions, respond to each other, or provide another statement. So, Jill, your closing statement. You want to do the <laughs> we need to stop our obsession with lazy rivers and building residence halls that look like ski resorts and expand our methods of delivery and support for all students and those not yet at our front doors. Higher education should no longer be thought as thought of as a privilege. It is a right for everyone. We need to construct our work differently and do more to ensure students' academic success. Basti? I would love to say that we are capable of a broad paradigm shift, but we've been talking about it for 30 years and we haven't shifted crap. So. <laughs> We just keep doing the same thing over and over and perpetuating the status quo. For deep change to occur in student affairs, there has to be a drastic shift. And in order to do that, we just need to stop doing what we're currently doing. All right. All right, audience, it's your turn to decide. If you are Team Jill, hold that blue card up. If you are Team Vasti, hold that red card up. This is a biased audience. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it is, I think it's, it's pretty clear our winner is Jill. But how about a big round of applause for both Basti and Jill? Our next topic. Innovate or, innovate or cultivate, create or cultivate. Should our field focus on a cycle of continuous innovation or further cultivation of existing resources and systems? Let's meet our guests for this debate. On the side of innovation, currently calling the most diverse city in the world Toronto home, Serving as the Executive Director for Student Affairs at Ryerson University, earned a doctoral degree from Fordham University in New York City, and has met every U.S. President since Ronald Reagan, a tradition he does not intend to continue. <laughs> Please welcome John Austin. Thanks. Am I going over here? You're right. 
And on the side of cultivation, originally from Niagara Falls, Canada, but currently calling Dallas, Texas home, a lecturer at the University of North Texas, a researcher at Royal Roads University, earned a PhD from the University of North Texas, enjoys playing the hits of the 80s and 90s on the ukulele, and has a multitude of rescue dog stories to share with fur family friends. Please welcome Laura Pasquini. She told me she's gonna hurt me. I, I, I think we should just do a show on stories of student affairs professionals. That's pretty interesting. Strange lives of student affairs professionals. It's a good book. All right, so we are starting. You are advocating, John, that we should have more innovation, more creators in student affairs. So 60 seconds for your opening statement. Innovator die, Tony. Innovator die. So our global economy for a while has been flirting, flirting with the new um, technology age, the new industrial revolution. This revolution, like every revolution before it, um, is based on creativity and innovation. This revolution, like every revolution before it, gives us two options. You have two options with this new revolution. You can, you can change and you can adapt and you can succeed, or you can become redundant, which is your choice. Which do you want to do? Even in higher education, we have to continue to evolve, and I would argue that higher education is one of the leaders of this evolution of innovation and change, with our fixation on research, invention, creativity, and most recently, business incubator. Raise your hand if you have a business incubator on your campus. See, it's happening on our campuses, and student affairs is part of the higher ed education, and we have to lead innovation, we have to be in charge of it. There's even calls, this is not a new call, there's even calls for innovation going back to 1937, 80 years ago, in the student personnel point of view, that calls for innovation and heightened levels of the ways that we think and do our work. 80 years ago, we, t we talked about this, it's not new. Okay, quoting the uh, 1937 document. Oh. John, your history is grand, but I'll tell you where you can stick your hype cycle. Why, why are we always saying what's next? Why do we always go to what's more? And why do we always have to worry about improving? Because I don't think we're taking care of what's at home on our campuses. I think our culture's obsession with innovations trickled in too far into higher ed, and we're not taking care of the systems, structures, and capacities we have within our own campus. We always look outside for quote-unquote experts, people who know more, or techno technology that might do more for us. But I'll be honest, a robot's not replacing me yet. Cultivate campus in the capacity we have. We have fantastic students, staff, and faculty who could do things and solve problems, not create more things. I think we need to think about the issues we have, and we need to think about long-term problem solving and the long tail. What's our long game plan and strategic thinking? On this cycle, I'm ready to get off this cycle train. All the new shiny things and ideas eventually cycle around, and what happens? They need to be maintained, sustained, and improved. Okay. All right, John. So I think you might agree that innovation has become a bit of a buzzword. No, you wouldn't agree. All right. I have bingo cards with them on. So I want to go back, actually, to, to Vasi and Jill's discussion here a little bit. How, how do we prevent this trap um, where we, we ignore basic and fun, fundamental elements of what we do, like student learning? in the pursuit, as Laura calls it, these shiny new objects, these shiny new things that may be beyond the scope of our work. 
Tony, I have a lot to say about that, but I'm going to give you two points. The first one is, I think we're selling ourselves short if we think we can't maintain what we're already doing well without looking to the future and doing new things. So I, I, this argument that we have to keep doing what we're already doing and just do that better is selling ourselves short. We are amazing people. We do this work for very little money, 24 hours a day, and we know what we're doing. We know how to maintain. We're sustainers. We're nurturers. We know how to do that work already. I'm making a call for bigger thinkers, bigger doers, bigger idea people, because we need that to sustain our, where we're going in this work. The second is that without some of the greatest innovations and innovative thinking thinkers in our profession, we wouldn't be where we are on the social agenda, social justice agenda right now. Some of the greatest progress we've made in social justice and student affairs has come from people who th thought outside the lines. We have to continue to nurture that thinking. We have to get people who think, think different, bigger, better, and more often to populate the ways that we're going to solve the continuing evolution of ideas and challenges our students are bringing to our campuses. Okay. Well, I you can, respond? No, you can't no. respond. No. You, can, you can take your time and respond if you like, but you do have Talk a question. Talk about my, angry, my uh, um, angry duck face, though. All right, so, so some of the promise of innovation are improved efficiencies, additional time, uh, increased access. And, and I know, Laura, that you, for instance, teach or have taught quite a few online courses. So you're not a robot, I get that. But, but how is that? She? I'm in real life. So how is using technology to teach, to educate, not at odds with your position? So we've been doing distance education for over 40 years. You might have done it by correspondence. My dad used to grade papers from a distance in mail. And how we work at a distance or remote hasn't changed, but as you add these new shiny things and these ways of doing new ideas, nothing does get taken away from our list. I would love what Jill said, is to remove things from our plate, but we keep saying, let's do more with less. They don't increase our salaries, they don't increase our staffing, they don't think about resources we need, and people are getting burnt out and leaving the field. Some great talent, and we're not managing the talent and developing that within. I think there's no way that we can innovate because we're just gonna have to start over and repeat that cycle with people. And I think that's what's really unfortunate about student affairs they're losing some people at a high and going rate. And you've seen sessions today talk about remote work, alternative careers. Why? Because they can't innovate at the capacity they're at and what they're expected to do on the day-to-day -day job. You, Matt. So, Tony, we have a, a, a great crowdsourced question that I actually think applies to both. So, uh, using the lens of, of sort of your debate stance, explain how your viewpoint makes better use of institutional resources. We'll start with Laura. Sure. So I don't think we ever look outside of what we do and who we are in a functional unit. I think we have the capacities within our graduate programs in all disciplines, not just in college personnel or higher ed or student affairs. I think we need to think about cross-disciplinary ways to connect and look at problems. So give me a problem and go towards a solution. And that might be your point on innovation, but I don't think we're doing that internally or within. We look out to get consulting groups like Boston Consulting and other people to come onto our campus to say what we should do before we actually assess, do an evaluation, and think about the needs at our campus and what we currently can do at our capacities. So I'd like us to think about having incubators of ideas, not the tech and business ones you have at your campus, but the ones that solve problems like losing transfer students or why our male grads aren't graduating. And same question to you. Thank you, Matt. I think just like JPK was saying, there's a bit of confusion about the definition of a key word here. We're confusing what innovation actually means. Innovation to people who say they don't like it or are scared of it, say things like flashy new shiny things. That's not what innovation is. Innovation is about taking something that's not working for you anymore and making it better. Prime example, we stole a great program from Rutgers University, brought it to Ryerson, and kicked its 
I was about to say a curse word. I don't think I can. <laughs> Kicked his butt um, and made it better and bigger for us at Ryerson and made it work for us. It was a brilliant idea that worked at Rutgers the way they did it, but we brought it and changed it and tooled it up. We innovated. We didn't invent anything. Rutgers maybe invented it. Maybe they stole it from somebody else. So there's some confusion about what innovation is. Innovation is about taking your existing resources, whether it's money or programs or people or time or space or offices, and making it better, bigger, bolder, better suited for the future. Always a Jersey joke in here for the Rutgers folks. Yeah, right? yeah. So we have 30 seconds to either respond or finish with your closing statement. Well, I'm not saying that I'm wearing the no hat to innovation, but I think we need to have more roots in what we're doing. And our roots take time. So if we keep moving forward and we don't just be and look at what's in front of us and not always ahead, then how are we going to actually establish um, systems, structures, and places where people want to work, want to learn, want to engage, and, and potentially come up with new ideas and innovate. I think we be, need to be less rootless, and we need to think about uh, maintaining and sustaining and cultivating our people, and not thinking about what's next on the horizon. I'm not being ignorant to that, but just being aware. I love Dr. Pasquini, um, and I love her because I'm not a she, doctor. I don't do that. I'm a researcher. I thought you were. I'm so sorry. Anyway, anyway. I'm not any, a physician. Sorry. Anyway, That's what I'm saying. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. She agrees with me. It's one of the reasons I love her. We're both innovators. We're both big thinkers. And I think the real argument here is how, do we t can, how can we continue to innovate within what we're doing and build new big thinkers in student affairs? We need to encourage our young new professionals to be big thinkers. We don't need to put them in a box. We need to encourage our mid-level managers to learn from their successes, their failures, and do bigger and better. And we need to demand our senior student affairs officers to say yes, get out of the way, and resource our ideas. Mm. All right, it's time for the audience to decide. If you're Team John, put that blue card up. If you're Team Laura, put your red card up. We are going to give this one to John. They don't know the cost of it. But give them both a round of applause. Good job. Great sports. Thank you. All right, and our last topic, debate. Is debate an effective tool for engagement? Let's meet our guests for the debate. Originally from East Meadow, Long Island, earned a PhD from Indiana University, currently serving as the Vice President for Student Affairs at the New York Institute of Technology, an avid climber having toppled Mount Rainier in Washington and Ben Nevis in Great Britain, and a collector of antique dictionaries, please welcome Patrick Love. And on the other side of the debate, calling New York City home, currently serving as a professor at Bowling Green State University, earned a master's and PhD from The Ohio State University, a self-proclaimed Shondaland addict, active runner and participant in the 2007 ACPA, NASPA, Akuhohai, and ACUI study tour in South Africa, please welcome Dafina Lazarus Stewart, or DL. This is our meta-commentary segment of the debate. So Patrick, you're a proponent of debate as an effective tool for discourse. Your opening statement, 60 seconds. 
Uh, I think there are several reasons why debate is effective. Uh, first of all, it requires an individual or a team of people to take a stand and then provide research or rational argument for that stand. Effective debate also requires that team to take the position of the other, to inhabit that space, to understand the other's stance. Um, and I believe that's a skill that's uh, desirable in our diverse culture. We also know from research that debate enhances critical thinking skills. It enhances the skill of research, organization, and presenting a compelling argument. Uh, and finally, since most um, debates are conducted in a team format, it also enhances the skill of collaboration and teamwork. All right, DL, you are decidedly anti-debate. Tell us more. Sure. I'm thinking here from the perspective of those who, who are coming, the attendees. And if the intended outcome of a program is to deepen understanding of others' perspectives and broaden awareness of alternate points of view, then debate is not an effective method for those attending. In practice, debate fosters simplistic meaning-making and false equivalencies, is often inappropriately applied to matters of human dignity, quickly devolves in actual practice into hostility and combativeness, and dissuades both participants and audiences from taking an empathic, compassionate approach to resolving disagreements in the interests of greater justice and equity. Further, as a tool, debate itself privileges communication styles that are white supremacist, patriarchal, and ableist. Although a debate may be easy to organize and promote as it feeds our primal desires to watch a fight, it is a lazy approach to doing the hard but necessary work of authentic perspective taking required to support complex epistemological and moral development and social life in diverse communities. So, DL raises several, I think, effective points, and... I see whose side the judge is on, the moderators. So my, my question for you, Patrick, is that I think our 24-hour news cycle, kind of the contentious rhetoric, um, has created some hostility and polarization. If you propose that debate is effective, how do you think that we should move forward as a more unified society? Um, with this tool? Well, that's a big question because I'm thinking about it as a pedagogical tool. Okay. And for me, uh, labeling debate as uh, white supremacist, patriarchal, and ableist is like uh, labeling a hammer a weapon. It can be, and often with devastating results. But I think a hammer in the hand of a skilled and aware, talented individual uh, can be used to create structures that provide for the safety, security, and shelter of people. Um, the other thing is I know, uh, you know the, the sort of devolving into um, uh, uh, conflict, um, the, the conflict or the um, Competition at the heart of debate ignores the fact that a properly constructed debate, debate is created in a context of cooperation where we have agreed to the rules and expectations of that. So, okay. Okay. Good. Thanks.
So my question for you is that if you say no to debate as a professional preparation tool within our classrooms, doesn't this perpetuate the misperception that student affairs is a warm and fuzzy discipline that's conflict averse? Mm. So if the only way we know how to engage conflict is through creating conflict and using conflict, then that seems to be a bigger problem. So to me, and, and the thing is, I think Patrick, I appreciate much of what you've said. I've used debate myself in classroom contexts when done right. You kept having to say when done right. And so the reliance on people knowing how to effectively use the hammer as a tool to put a nail in a piece of wood versus as a weapon is highly suspect. And we've seen too many examples where people just do not use it appropriately in the public sphere. And for me, as I was thinking about this topic, I was, as I mentioned in my opening comments, thinking about um, how many forums are set up on college campuses debating some issue as a program. Right, So it's not in the context of the classroom. It's not in a team approach. It's not in that way. It's meant really to create this, this combative competition. Questions from the audience on this one? We, we have a bunch, and, and there's, some, some, <laughs> there's some common themes, so, but we'll just, we'll just do one. And I actually think for, for, both, uh, for, for both of our participants, this will be helpful. So given the contentious debates that we all experienced in the fall, right. what does, how does participating in them or not participating them in them affect future outcomes? That's what it says. I, okay. <laughs> Who do you want to how, go first? How it, well, we'll start, with, we'll start with Patrick. How does it, I, I, think what, I think what it's trying to say. We'll let Patrick unpack I the question. I think what it's trying to say, how does participating or, or deciding not to participate like affect future outcomes? If you choose not to participate or you choose to participate in the divisiveness, does that affect the future outcome? Well, first of all, labeling what occurred in the fall as a debate, <laughs> I, I, would, I would argue that those were not debates um, at all. They were uh, merely opportunities for people to state what they intended to state anyway. Um, so I don't think of any learning coming from that. Um, but I'd also say uh, that just as I have seen uh, uh, critical dialogue methodology misused by people and hurt people because they weren't uh, trained or prepared to conduct uh, such a conversation, critical dialogue, difficult, uncomfortable, uh, and it hurt people mm -hmm. just as debate can hurt people as well when not done well. Mm -hmm. I guess if, if I'm I'm trying to understand, sort of work my way into the question, and I think if we believe that the only way that we can encourage people to research alternate points of view, to know how to use research, um, to marshal evidence to support an idea, is through debate, then I think we're limiting ourselves. Right? That's not the only tool. We know from epistemological development theory that, you know, that's, that basically debate orients very much towards separate knowing styles if we use um, the women's ways of knowing, for instance, or you know, the procedural knowing. Um, 
versus thinking about connected knowing. How can we encourage that, which can also encourage critical thinking, can also encourage complex thought? So you know, how can we expand our range of pedagogical tools? You know, and I think there's a need for that. Awesome. All right, closing statements on our final debate of the night. Patrick. So obviously I think that debate is a valid uh, pedagogical tool in a range of pedagogical tools. I would never conduct a 15-week class strictly using debate. Um, but, uh, but I also agree with uh, DL that I believe that uh, debate and all of our pedagogical tools in the classroom uh, should be used and could be used appropriately to um, identify and deconstruct privilege, marginalization, and oppression. Dia, closing statement? So in conclusion, I, I, I really do think I appreciate Patrick's thoughts and, I, and contributions around this, but I think I'm ultimately unmoved that debate is an appropriate or healthy tool to really orient our college communities to be guided by an ethic of love versus one of competition. I mean, we look at the marketing of this event in and of itself. Look at the pictures that have been used that creates an intentionally combative, hostile, like that we're supposed to be at each other, um, which is not what this is supposed to be about, ultimately. Well done. All right, so depending on the result, did today even happen, right? I mean, that's... <laughs> Or will next year happen? I'm not sure. So if you are uh, Team Patrick, hold up your red card. If you are Team DL, hold up your blue card. I don't know what that means for this happening again next year. We're going to give... <laughs> I'm buying the six red cards How about drinks. a nice round of applause for both of them? And how about a big round of applause for all of our debaters today? Folks, while these debates may be over, the conversation should continue. All of our participants encourage you to partake in regular healthy discourse. The future and strength of our field depends on it. Thank you so much for joining us for this very special edition of Student Affairs Live from ACPA in beautiful Columbus. Let's hear it for our moderators for contested issues, Tony Duty and Heather Shang. And let's hear it for Matt Ferguson as our MC. Thanks, Thank you Matt. very much. Yeah. And folks, we want you to join Heather next Wednesday, April 5th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time for her next episode of Student Affairs Live. Keep calm and let the Dean of Students handle it. Exploring the changing role of the quintessential student affairs position. So folks, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday and enjoy Columbus and ACPA. Thank you.